you turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 42, as we continue here in Genesis 42, as we finish the chapter tonight, we're kind of on the, the final section here of the book of Genesis, and it really, the totality of the remainder of the book is the story of the life of Joseph and his brothers. But here tonight, we, we reach this passage that at first glance, there's a lot of repetition really of the story. Uh, of what's already transpired with the brothers and, and Joseph and uh, the commands and the things that are said to him. But there's a secret buried in this. And so God very often uses the brokenness in our lives to accomplish very fruitful things. And we see in this passage really the fruit of that brokenness. And there are really three specific things I want to pull out of it and then I want to give you some keys Uh, to restoration, to restoring relationships. That fruit that's in your life that very often comes to you because you've been in a place that God really didn't intend for you. Uh, Because you didn't listen the first time, sometimes we get in those situations. And I want to really highlight tonight kind of how God uses all things as Mikey was praying and, and, and talking, it's like he, he does, he is the God of Romans 8.28. He does work all things together to the good. For those who love him, love God, and are the called ones according to his purposes. Even the things we do to mess stuff up. The broken things in our lives. That is not an excuse to engage in those broken things. That is definitely not an excuse to break things. It is not permission from the word of God to act inappropriately. It certainly isn't so that you can go sell someone into uh, indentured servitude so that they can be in the right place eventually. This doesn't excuse our actions. But it is a beautiful picture of how a God that redeems, a God that restores Uh, A God that's very concerned about all of your relationships can use brokenness in you to accomplish great works. And so we'll pick up in verse 25 and we'll finish chapter 42 and the fruit of brokenness. Would you pray with me? Father, we bring again our own lives before your throne of grace and we ask you to expose in us those areas that you want to speak. And, And Lord... We know that sometimes we do some things that put us in a place where you are almost necessitated to use the the broken parts of our lives. And we thank you in those moments that you even use things like fear and trepidation. Lord, you use the uneasiness of soul. Uh, You use the things that don't feel good. They don't feel comfortable to bring us to that place to where you can speak into our lives in a new and a fresh way. And I pray if there's someone here tonight, Lord, that's struggling in some area, they have wronged someone. Uh, They've gotten themselves into a place to where their life is a mess, it's broken. Uh, That you'd cause them to see these wonderful things that you can do and seek them. Lord, when we come clean, when we Say yes and amen to your offer of grace. You're quick to forgive and to cleanse. And so, Lord, speak to us through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 25 here in Genesis 42, and it continues really the story we began last Sunday night. And then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with with grain and to restore every man's money to his sack. Now, you have to notice immediately The brothers don't know this, and we're going to find that out in a moment. There is always within the heart of anyone who has God's heart a desire to restore. There is always within someone's heart who has the heart of God the desire to restore. Someone who truly loves the Lord will never seek to extract their pound of flesh or their retribution. It is just simply not like God. And we who love the Lord, if we desire mercy, we want to be merciful. If we want forgiveness, we need to be forgiving. If our heart is inclined towards the things of the Lord, then the qualities and characteristics we find 
to be true about God and Scripture are the things that should define us. And so this shouldn't be a strange thing to any of us who know the Lord, that God's desire is restoration. And I want you to see it even begins in a physical way here. That Joseph, looking at his brothers, remember he's spoken harshly to them. Um, They're very afraid. Uh, They know that they are now going to have to leave their brother and they're going to go back to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. Uh, And it's, it's not a good thing. And part of that is on them. They have not fully repented. They have understood that they've wronged their brother. They know that they need to do something, but they haven't figured out what that something yet is. So Joseph says, Fill their sacks with grain, restore to every man the money in his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. And this is a picture of God's grace. He doesn't have to do that, does he? He doesn't owe them a thing. Matter of fact, he could have extracted a high price and kept the money. And probably most of us in this room would have said, well, that's fair, he didn't kill them. God is a God of grace and God is a God of mercy. And I love sometimes the mercy of God Uh, maybe even more in a practical sense than I love the grace of God at times because mercy is us not getting what we have deserved or earned. Amen? And I'm so grateful that God has been merciful to me in my life, that the full extent of what he could have done to me, he did not do. The full price he could have extracted from me, he did not take. And that is pictured here in this passage. Joseph kind of standing in for the Lord Jesus is merciful to his brothers. As a matter of fact, he's not just merciful. You can see the grace of God. In other words, he gives them what they have not deserved or earned. He's being better to them than they deserve. Anybody thankful to the Lord for the grace of God in their life? This is a picture of God's grace. He's going to give them provision. He's going to actually make their journey easier than it should have been. And thus he did for them And so they loaded their donkeys with grain and departed from there. But one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, and he saw his money, there it was in the mouth of the sack. Now, you have to recognize this is undoubtedly the very first place they stop because the money's in the mouth of the sack, amen? So the first time they stop, they're they're on this journey which is going to take them several weeks to get back to the land of Canaan, Uh, We believe this journey was 250 to 300 miles, and and they are maybe going to cover 30 miles a day or thereabouts. So if they did the maximum, they're probably going to get there in 10 to 12 days. But they're on a long journey, and the first thing that they see is the money in their sacks. And it begins to dawn on them that, that something is up, but they don't quite know what it is. And very often when God begins to work in our lives... Things become exposed in our lives. And sometimes we mistake the goodness of God for God's messing with us a little bit. That that maybe he's not genuine. Maybe this isn't actually forgiveness. Maybe this could even be a trap. You see, when you have been dishonest with God, you don't know whether God is honest with you because you have lived a life of dishonesty. When you have cajoled God, when you have manipulated circumstances, when you get in the habit of mistreating God, God can be good to you and you will misread it because your heart is not right. And you can see that in this passage. They don't know how to receive the grace of God. They don't know what to do with it. It, It's like, well, maybe he's trying to trap us. Notice what they say. And so he said to his brothers, my money has been restored. There it is in my sack. Now you would think they'd all be jumping up and down going, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. We got our cash back. But check it out. Then their hearts failed them. And they were afraid. Saying to one another, What is this that God has done to us? And there it is. When you have not been honest with God, you don't even know how to respond 
to the good things that he does to you, for you, wants to do through you. And so this is a real warning to us. If you want to read correctly the way God is working in your life, you need to be honest with God all the time. 100% of the time. One of the things that bothers me the most in our society right now is the complete, total, and almost utter lack of integrity in the lives of an awful lot of very powerful people. It's like they will say anything at any time to get whatever they want from whomever they need to get it from. And when you live a life like that, because that's what these brothers did, they said exactly what they needed to say to preserve their own selves, to get what they wanted, to protect themselves, to, to not receive the punishment due. And when you live like that, when you don't have integrity, you don't even know what to do when integrity does come your way. You misread the integrity of others. Their hearts failed. They're thinking, what's this? What's God done to us? Then they went to Jacob, their father, and so now you can tell that they've journeyed. We're not told how long it took them, but there appears to be some time that's lapsed between verses 25 and 29, and it's the journey takes place in there. And they went to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, and they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man who is Lord of the land, remember their brother Joseph, whom they do not know is the Grand Vizier, is the Grand Vizier of Egypt. He's the second most powerful man in Egypt. He bears the signet ring of the Pharaoh. And so here's Joseph being good to them. And notice how they receive it. Where are they right now? They're free, they're back home, they have 100% of their cash and they have the grain that they went seeking. But when you have lived a life that lacks integrity, even the good things of the Lord can look bad. He spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. You know, when you live like this, you almost always assume the worst. Because you have lived like this. You expect that one day you're going to be found out. That's why integrity is so important in our lives as believers. It's one of the very few things that is, if it's not impossible, it is very difficult to recover your integrity if you lose it. But we said to him, we are honest men, we're not spies. We are 12 brothers, and so they're repeating They're retelling the story that they've already told. Sons of our father, and one is no more. more. See, they still can't tell their father what they did. They're still basically carrying on the lie that they started more than 20 years earlier. And the youngest is with our father to this day in the land of Canaan. And then the man, the lord of the country, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take your food for the famine of your households and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me. And so I shall know that you are not spies and that you are honest men. And I will grant your brother to you and you may trade in the land. So they recount what Joseph said to them. And then it happened as they emptied their sacks that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their fathers saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And again, you can see what happens when you live a life of brokenness. That brokenness infects even the good things in life. It creeps into the corners that you ought to be able to discern very quickly Now think about it for a second. Is there really any possible way that all of this money ended up in there accidentally? The answer is no. Who's the only person that could have had all of this money? That would be Joseph. Joseph himself did not put the money in, so he must have instructed somebody to do it. And if they'd thought for more than a few seconds, they probably would have come to terms with the fact 
that they were being dealt with very kindly. Because if Joseph had wanted to punish them, they would never have made it out of Egypt. Amen? They would have just got a few blocks down the road. They'd have been, you know, just outside of town. Joseph would have sent the same guys that put the money in there. He would have pulled them over to the side of the road and said, Aha, your spies, we're going to kill you. Because the only place it could have come from was Joseph. But they are so fixated on the fact that they haven't been honest, they believe that everyone else thinks the same way. Do you know why Jesus says, Judge not, lest you yourself also be judged in the same manner? Because when you have wrong judgment towards other people, that judgment has a way of coming back to you. And it's true in reverse. When you are not honest with other people, you think other people are messing with you. You wander around going, well, I I deserve this because I'm always dishonest with them. And so it wouldn't shock me if they're trying to do us in here. They can't even see logically, it doesn't even make any sense that they would have ever gotten out of Egypt if there wasn't something good that God was trying to do for them. That's what brokenness does in our lives. We, we don't see clearly. And then Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. And then Reuben spoke to his father saying, and I want you to notice this. If you want to see where brokenness, a a life lived apart from the plans of God can lead you. Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. What is that going to do? Are you really going to kill your two sons because you did something wrong? The thing that comes to mind for me is abortion. This is the argument Seriously? Is the death of someone innocent going to make what's been done right? It's not. It doesn't here and it doesn't anywhere else. The only thing that makes wrongs right is when you repent and seek restoration. When you stop and say, look, I was wrong. Don't do this. Don't add another sin on top of that which is already sin. Those boys were innocent. Furthermore, Reuben didn't have any business even offering their lives for his sin. Now, if you just said, kill me, that's a different matter. He said, look, this is on my head. Take my life. That's another matter. But again, when you live a life that's compromised, these are the types of things you think. You don't stop long enough to say, Lord, what would you have me do? He just kind of blurts this out. Put him in my hands and I'll I'll bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you. For his brother is dead. And he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, which admittedly Jacob had every reason to believe that, amen? Every time one of the younger brothers went out with these guys, somebody ended up missing. And you will bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. I want to pull three things out of this, and then I want to give you some keys. First thing that we notice is this testing, this tension. Let me just express this to you. When God wants to get your attention, he can get your attention. And very often he does it with this type of an environment where you are tested and the tensions are high. Where in your life you know that you're not in that space and place that you're supposed to be. And you begin to try and figure out how to fix something that's broken. But you don't have a clue. And so you try and put band-aids on it. You, you, You try and put quick fixes on it. You attempt to fix it without actually fixing it. 
And God leaves that condition broken in your life because he wants it fixed correctly. He wants to do the whole work of restoration. But we're not looking for that, and so God leaves us in a place of testing and a place of tension. He he allows those things to remain in our lives. And and I want to just speak into your life. There's a reason that in, in somebody like me, I've probably got, well, maybe not 60 pounds of mostly muscle. There might be like 20 pounds of muscle and 40 pounds of fat, but you know, I have probably 60 pounds of, of what we would call meat. I, I probably have 40 pounds or so. A six-foot man has about 40, maybe 40 pounds of skeletal structure, bones, and sinews. Your brain weighs about two and a half to three and a half pounds, and your tongue weighs about 18 ounces. But it's those 18 ounces that often get us into trouble, Amen. So sometimes we have to recognize that it's not the big things that get us into trouble. It's the small things. It's the little tiny compromises. It's the stuff we say. And as you begin to speak things that are maybe not true or accurate, or or you concoct plans that don't honor the Lord, you add another one of those things onto it, before you know it, your, your 18 ounces of tongue has gotten you into 100 pounds of trouble. Amen? Only God can fix things when they're messed up like that because he created all of it. He he is the creator of the entire universe. There's a story, when Connie and I were living in in Austria, we took a little trip and we went up into Austria and then into Switzerland. We went to, to the town of Zermatt, the home of the Matterhorn. And as you're driving there, there's a little tiny chapel between Brig and Chur, and it's called the Mountain Valley Chapel. It's very beautiful. It sits in the end of this, you know, just picturesque alpine valley. And it sits at such a place that when the organ in that chapel was played, it can actually be heard over 10 miles away. It's just a regular pedal organ where you're providing, you know, by pumping your feet, you're actually making the air that's being pumped through the pipes. That organist that was playing that, and this happened in the 1800s, Um, that organ all of a sudden one day just stopped. It was broken. And over a period of about two years, various people came in to try and figure out what was wrong with that organ. They tried all kinds of stuff. They fixed the bellows. They fixed the foot pump. They removed some of the pipes and they put them in. And every time they fired up that organ, it sounded like somebody was sitting on their cat. It sounded terrible. It went on for a year that they didn't even try to fix it. And finally, the sexton of the church, the rector of the church, was walking through town one day, and he was wearing his garb, and he bumped into a man, and the man actually asked him a question. He said, I noticed there hasn't been any organ music. Normally, I hear it. I live way down at the end of the valley, and if the wind is still, if the wind's calm or it's blowing towards my house, I can hear the sound of the organ. And he says, well, that's because it's broken. He says, well, I know a few things about organs. Would you mind if I gave it a try? Could, could I possibly? He said, well, what could it hurt? It doesn't work now. It hasn't been played in a year. And for three days and two nights, this very elderly man sat and tinkered and fiddled with that organ. Early in the morning, the town awoke to the most melodious sounds of organ music that had been absent for almost four years now. And here's this little old man sitting at the keyboard on this organ just playing it beautifully. No one could believe it. The pastor of the church walks back into the church. He says, I can't believe you fixed it. The old man looked at him. He said, well, I knew exactly what to do. I'm the one that built it. (laughs) That's our problems before the Lord, family. That's how God sees your brokenness. God sees your brokenness in that exact way. 
You don't have a clue what to do because you didn't make you. You didn't make that person that maybe your relationship is damaged between the two of you. You you didn't make the earth and everything in it. It's not yours, it's his. But when God steps into that situation, it's not a problem for him to fix it. But you must turn it over to him for him to do that. You can tinker all you want. And you may even make some progress. But if you really want that testing and you want that tension to end, you must turn it over to the Lord. The second thing that we see here is a time of fear and faint-heartedness in these brothers. This shouldn't even be there, but it is there. And when you look at it, Joseph's command is the thing that set them free. If Joseph had wanted to imprison them, he could have just done that from the get-go. They could have come in. He could have just said, okay, guys, game's over. I'm your brother Joseph that you sold into slavery. You're going to prison. Matter of fact, I'm going to kill you right now. He could have just done that. But he didn't. But God does give us periods of fear and faint-heartedness to make us turn to him. He leaves us in that place to where we're uncertain because he wants us to be certain in him. And as you look at this story, you can see how God is using these things in these brothers' lives to get them in just the right place. Because if you don't reach the place to where you want restoration... If you don't want brokenness fixed in your life, if you're still trying to hold on to your reasons why that thing got broken in the first place, why that relationship is a mess in the first place, if you're still hanging on to that, then very often God will leave fear in your life and God will leave faint-heartedness in your life. He will let you sweat bullets. He'll let you go through the end of you Because very often, it's not until we come to the end of ourselves that we can even get to that place that God can work in our lives. Sometimes when I think about my own life and all the things that I've been through, it's easy to sit around, and I think probably every person in here has periods of time in your life where, if we're honest, we would sit around and just bemoan that time in our life. It's like, I can't believe this happened, and these things, you know, these were unfair and unjust, and, you know, we get into our little kind of pity party. And I'm picking on no one because I've done it myself, okay? So let me just join you in that. We're, We're in that together. But the answer is not us sitting around being sorrowful and pitiful over ourselves or our own condition. The the way that gets fixed is we turn those things over to the Lord. And what he does is he takes away the fears that have come into our lives because we felt like we deserve better or the faint-heartedness because we realize that we've been wronged and and our, our heart is wounded. You see, these brothers had every reason in the world to tear this story apart and ask a lot of why questions. They're probably, why is that money in there? Why did he let us go in the first place? You know, they, they, they could have been running through this possible solutions in their mind, and their mind becomes fearful. It's like we can't make heads or tails of this. It is not until you submit those things to the Spirit that they start to make some sense. You know, there are some of us in this room that are far better at, at running through a long train of logic than others, and there are some that are more uh, in, in, in actually enabled to handle the emotional sides of it. And some of us have a little of both. But the fact of the matter is, it's only the Lord that can set us free from the things in our lives that have given us fear and have given us that faint-hearted feeling when you just go, it's like, I don't know if I can even make it. And you can see they've actually transferred this over to their father. There's a little tiny thing here I want to bring to your attention. When families begin to act this way, it affects everyone. When these things take root in our homes, it affects the whole home. When we're not honest, when we we fail to have integrity, when we allow brokenness to infect a part of our family, it invariably infects the entire family. 
And you can see that in this family. And so here's what's happened. Now, now Jacob, Israel, the one who was heel catcher, who still gets called by his old name, amen? He should be Israel right now. But he's so uncertain of who his God is that he, he's still being called. Instead of Israel, he's being called Jacob again. That's a perfect time for us to stop and seek the Lord and say, God, is there some part of this that lies with me? Is there something I'm responsible for? Because I'm afraid, and your Bible tells you, my Bible tells me, perfect love, God's love, casts out all fear. And so if there's fear, fear, your Bible says, involves torment. God's not going to torment you. He might test you, but when you get to the level of fear and faint-heartedness, you know the enemy's got some part in it. Amen? And a third thing, and this is really the kind of final stage, so you have testing and tension, and then fear and faint-heartedness, and finally you kind of see this, there's desperation, there's despair. You don't know what to do with the broken organ that's in your chapel. And you can see it in the brothers' lives. They have not a clue. Was it their fault this Egyptian officer has done these things to them? Did he actually know who they were? Can you imagine what they're thinking right now? And so they're going through desperation. Your flesh does this to you. This is one of these areas to where it really is our own flesh most of the time that gets us into this place to where we begin to, to despair and have desperation. And I think everybody's prone to it to some degree. But it, it's in that place that we should stop and go, well, what's causing this? Why am I in this place in the first place? Why am I saying dumb things like kill my kids? Why have I lost all sense of, in essence, morality? I mean, there is nothing about this story when you look at what Reuben has said that makes any sense whatsoever. Keep my kids, and if I don't come back, kill them. That's desperation. That's reaching out for answers that are not answers at all. That's a response of flesh. And when you see yourself acting in desperate ways, you need to stop and say, God, Settle my heart. Help me to rest and trust in you. Don't let me act selfishly here. Let me listen to your voice. Get me away from this desperation, this despair. Get me out of this tension and fear, these perplexing situations, out of this despair of life, and let me get right into the center of your will. And if we don't do that, what ultimately happens, these things snowball on us. And all of a sudden, the fear and the desperation get mixed with some faint-heartedness, and you end up in another test, and you fail that test. And before you know it, you just throw your hands up in the air and say, I'm going back to the world. I'm going back to Egypt. At least I had food down there. I've watched this play out in people's lives time and time again because they will not do the one thing that God is looking for in this situation. All he's looking for, I'm sorry, I repent, let's fix this. That's it. That's what he's looking for. That's what Joseph wants. As a stand-in in our story, as a picture, a typology of Christ, if you will, all the Lord's looking for when we get in these situations is just stop. Lord, against you and you alone have I sinned, I'm sorry, would you please help me fix this? Would you step into the situation that I've messed up and help me bring some healing to this brokenness and this relationship? The brothers hadn't quite gotten there yet, but they're close. They're heading the right direction. And that's the beauty of these things that we see working in a negative way. Don't always look at the negative circumstances in your life as if they're just completely negative because God uses those negative things to bring you to a positive place. Remember what I just said? He uses negative things to bring you to a positive place. He 
takes away things so that you'll get in that place to where you're going to rest and trust in him. Maybe you're self-sufficient tonight and you need to be more sufficient in him. Maybe you're a little bit prideful tonight and you need to be humbled. Maybe there's some area of your life to where you think you're the answer and God wants to be the answer. He may remove something so that he can put the right thing in its place. Don't underestimate that. I want to give you seven keys and we can do them quickly tonight. And these are not from this passage. But some keys to restoring brokenness. Broken things, very specifically, brokenness within relationships. The very first one is found in a very strange book, a very strange verse that's found in Deuteronomy 27, it's verse 5. And it's instruction to the children of Israel. It's a very strange one. And there as Moses is instructing the children of Israel, he says, There you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones, and you shall not use an iron tool on them. Now, unless you understand what is being said there, it could be a little bit obscure, but I want to point it out to you. God is spirit, and they that worship him worship him in spirit and in truth. And what God was telling the children of Israel through Moses was, don't try and carve me into your image. I want you to go find natural stones and I want you to build an altar out of those natural stones. Don't make the altar something that's beautiful to you. You just do what I tell you to do. And I think very often what happens is we kind of build the altar the way we think it ought to look. We build the altar with a little bit of our own selves, maybe some pride or self-rule or maybe some bitterness or anger or jealousy, we take and instead of just dealing with things the way God sees them, we try and make him deal with them the way we see them. I call this the neutral reset. You need to press the reset, take it back to neutral, and let God have the situation that you want restored in the, in the state in which it actually exists not your version of it, not your chiseled-on version, but the actual situation the way it really exists. So the first key is, look, you can't carve God into your image. You need to worship him the way he is. And if you want him to restore something that's broken, let him have the problem. Don't tell him how right you are and the way you feel about it. You let him have the problem. Your, your attitude, their attitude, and everything in between. There's an interesting thing that the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 6. And it is this principle. The only thing that the angels could say in Isaiah 6 about God is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You see, ultimately, when you're dealing with God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He alone is God. He knows exactly what to do. And so if you let him be God in that situation, instead of trying to chisel his character to meet your demands and needs, you're going to find out he's going to be right 100% of the time. And you're going to be in the space that you're supposed to be in. Assuming that you do that, a second thing that is monumentally helpful, when we have broken something, when there's a damaged relationship, when there's an area of our life that we're looking to the Lord to fix, little newsflash for you, you are not Messiah. There's not one person in here who's God. There are none of us that are righteous, not one. None of us are perfect. Uh, None of us make absolutely perfect decisions. And so it is really incumbent upon us to remember that when we have broken relationships in our lives. Because I've watched person after person basically deal with situations like this to where they feel like they are the most righteous person in the room and so they act like they have a superior position to everyone else. The problem is the one who's going to solve the problem is God and you are inferior to him in every way imaginable. 
And so we can't be judgmental. God sees things that we don't see. He's able to do things we cannot do. We need to leave these things in his hands. That's why Jesus there in Matthew 7 said, Judge not lest you yourself be judged. Because the same judgment with which you judge others, you're going to be judged by that same thing in that same measure. And I can tell you something I figured out about myself. Forget the rest of you. I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. I understand things on Monday very differently than I see them on Tuesday. Anybody ever see those things? I can tell you one of the things that happens in a pastor's life is Monday you kind of have this little letdown from Sunday. It's like the Lord's been working. There's all kinds of crazy great things that God's doing. You get to Monday and it's just like, ugh. I have to do administration today. I got to sign purchase order. What's this for? You know, you cop an attitude. You end up in a place where you're like, man, I, why are you giving this to me? Do you know how hard I worked yesterday? This is a pastoral thing I'm just sharing with you. So verse 3 of Matthew 7, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and do not consider the plank in your own eye? And sometimes I've got like this log hanging out of my forehead and somebody brings me a speck and I'm like, I'll kill you. You are dead. One more speck is three specks and I can't see anymore. Yeah, remove the speck from your eye, the plank out of your own eye. Don't be, as Jesus said there in verse five, a hypocrite. Don't be judgmental. A third thing, be slow to speak. What did the brothers do? Blah, 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 blah. First thing they do, first thing that we hear is they're all figuring out, well, what do we do? You know, where do we go? Who did this? What's our response? I think sometimes if we would just take a little bit of time to allow the Lord to work in a situation before we start running our mouths, we'd find out that we don't have to worry about what James says in James chapter 3 which is consider the tongue and how it's set amongst the members it boasts of great things. See what a fire it can kindle. We put bridles in horses' mouths. We put rudders on ships. Those things are small, but man, you can turn the whole ship with just the rudder, amen? And the same is true when we, we talk. You know, there's, there's an old axiom. Uh, if your mind should go blank, don't forget to turn off the sound. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I don't know what I should say. Well, try not saying anything when that happens. Try being silent. Go to the Lord. Be slow to speak. You know, your temper is one of those things that never mellows with age. Temper has a tendency to get sharper as you get older. Takes a lot to get it dull, in fact. We have to be careful. Every time these brothers open their mouths, what happens? Situation gets worse, doesn't it? it because they're just, well, I, you know, did you do it? I don't know. Did I do it? I don't know. A little girl was talking to her teacher about whales. The teacher said it was physically impossible for a whale to swallow Jonah. A large mammal, its throat's very small. Little girl stated that Jonah was swallowed by a whale, and irritated the teacher's just going off on her. Can't swallow a human, it's physically impossible. Little girl said, Well, when I get to heaven, I'll ask Jonah. And the teacher said, Well, what if Jonah went to hell? And then you ask him. (laughs) Why don't I hold that back a little bit? Pretty sure F. D minus. <laughs> they have been true. Just because things are true doesn't mean you should say them. Be slow to speak. A fourth thing show mercy. Show mercy. And here's why. And this is for me. It's not for you, it's for me. The reason I want to show mercy 
as I have found in my life, I am almost 100% of the time never totally guiltless. I honestly can tell you that if nothing else, in my attitude, I'm usually not guiltless completely. I may have the facts right. I may see clearly. I may have all the parts in the right places. But very often I've got a little bit of a snippy attitude about things. And so I show mercy because I need mercy. This relationship that's damaged between these brothers, this family that's wrecked with this situation that's before us, can you imagine if mercy takes over in this situation? Joseph is already exemplifying what it means to be merciful. Imagine that catches fire in the family. Imagine the outflow of mercy, which it is. The outflow of mercy generally is grace. When you give someone mercy, when you do not give them what they've deserved, when you withhold from them, especially on the negative side of this, when you withhold punishment, when somebody is actually do something negative and you don't give that to them and you say, you know what, I just believe God wants me to be merciful, you're saying something about their value. You're saying how much you value that relationship and how much you want that relationship to be healed and you're being merciful to enable it. And then what happens is grace gets poured out in that situation. Then you start to receive things that you don't deserve. You not only don't get what you should get, you get what you shouldn't get. Be merciful. You're going to find that almost without exception, you have some part in it. Maybe it was your perception. Maybe it's the way you organize the facts. I'm one of those people. I put stuff in boxes. I'm a mental organizer. It's like, okay, this is first and this is second. And this is third. I'm not quite sure what's fourth. I'll leave that blank for now. But there's a box B over here. I can put that in later. I'm that type of person. I'm, I'm very methodical and I'm linear in my thinking. The problem with that is what happens if I mess up anywhere in my equation, then the whole thing's a mess. And so all I've got to do is mess up one fact. And before you know it, I don't actually see it clearly because I've run through those things in a straight line from point A to point B. And all of a sudden, I've come to a conclusion. Please be merciful with other people. Don't give them what they deserve, even if they've wronged you. Do not give them wrong in return. You do not want to be like the blessed sisters of mercy that have at the front of their convent in Israel trespassing violators will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of law. Thank you, the sisters of mercy. It's true as a heart attack. I saw this thought, I'm like, that doesn't really say that. Yeah, it does. Like, Don't y'all bring yourselves in here. It's crazy. We get like that. It's like, we are the sisters of mercy. I don't know if they talk like that, but maybe. Exhibit grace. So this is the bookend. This is the other side. Be merciful. Don't give people what they have deserved, especially on the negative side. That's really implying the, the negative result of something. But the flip side is, just like Christ paid your price, pay other people's price. Give them grace. Show them what it's like to be Jesus. Let them know exactly how much value they have. You see, I know my value in Christ because Christ died for me, amen? If you've ever wanted to know how valuable you are to God, Jesus Christ, God's own son, was God's gift to tell you that. That massive pouring out of grace in your life is how God has treated you. And as little Christ Christians, we're to act like that. 
And if these brothers had gotten a couple of these things and started thinking about them for a second, look, God's been merciful to us. He could have exposed our whole plan 20 plus years ago and dad could have just killed all of us. But he didn't. And we got to this place and we went down to Egypt. We could have gone to prison, but he didn't. And so he, they should have been in that place to where it's like, man, we need to be gracious. We need to be giving and forgiving. Because the truth of the matter is, all of us, there's not one person in here, nobody in this room can pay your own bill. You cannot pay for your own sins. It's not possible. And so don't expect other people to be able to do it either. And when they come up a little short, give them the money out of your pocket. Pay the bill for them. Give them what they don't deserve. That's the kind of stuff that's of Jesus. That will change the way they actually see the situation. They'll look at it, I don't deserve this. Why are you being so nice to me? That's why Paul said, look, when you do these types of things, it heaps coals on somebody's head. It's either you can take the good example of that, which is, you know, you're putting coals there so they can carry it to their next place and have a fire, or the negative side of it, which is it's going to burn. doesn't matter which one you use. The result's the same. To heap coals in someone's head is to do good to them. It's to put them in that place. It's like, man, they know that God loves them. Be gracious. If you want to restore brokenness, be gracious. Be forgiving. Anybody in here pretty thankful that God forgave you of your sin? Hallelujah. Amen? Amen? And so what do you think the ingredient is if you want forgiveness to come into a relationship that's broken? It's amazing to me how many people want to hang on to bitterness, anger, and unforgiveness and think it's going to fix something. It'll never fix anything. It'll just make it worse. And that's not how God's treated us. When you read the end of Matthew 18, a couple of things should happen to you, but one of them is a little tiny bit of fear should come in. And it's the same thing that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount as he finishes with, with the Lord's Prayer and he, he begins these processes of speaking about blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. But at the end of the Lord's Prayer, he says, look, forgive men their trespasses. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. And he goes on, how does he, how does he finish that? He says, forgive our trespasses. Forgive them. But if you don't forgive men theirs, because your father's going to hang on to yours too. Man, God forgave me. I have no business hanging on to unforgiveness towards other people. It's so totally unlike my Savior because he's forgiven me everything. Everything. Every foolish, sinful evil, despicable thing that I've ever thought or done, the Lord Jesus with his own blood has said, Jeff, I forgive you. He's also said, go and sin no more, but he said, I forgive you, Jeff. We have to forgive. If you want something fixed, you have to be ready to forgive. That's why Jesus said, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Those things are absolutely not on our radar, amen? Those are God things. Bless those who do evil to you. There's another way you can translate that passage. When somebody does something bad to you, you're supposed to bless them. You're like, "Uh uh-uh, ain't happening over here. If you want God's best in your life, these are the things that the best for you are made out of. Is you be forgiving. And that's, that's not, your, you're just simply a doormat. If you love those who love you, Jesus said, what credit is that to you? 
Even people who don't know the Lord do that. Amen? He, Jesus said the heathens do that. Somebody walks up to you and, and hands you $10,000. They give you a bank stack of $100 bills. They go, here, I was just thinking about you. You're going, you're new, my new best friend. You know, can I come over to your house? Do you, like, can I sweep your porch, do something for you? All of a sudden, it's like, I love you, man. But if that same person comes up the next day and smacks you in the face, you're going, man, I hate your guts. It's the same person, isn't it? Have you thought about what maybe was going on in that person's mind that would have stimulated them one day to give you $10,000, the next day to hit you in the face? It's the same person. And that's the same person that Christ died for. And you are in need of the same grace that that person needs. The same mercy that that person needs. The same forgiveness that that person needs. And that's why Jesus said you are mandated to be forgiving. It's not an option in the life of the child of God. And finally, we'll close with this. Restoration, which is kind of the focus of all of this. Fixing the broken things, allowing brokenness to have uh, a place to where God can use it in your life and do something good with it. That restoration that God wants to use uh, to fix that situation is a command. Paul said this in Romans 12. He said, if it's possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath for it is written vengeance is mine says the lord i will repay if somebody in your life actually needs a spanking if somebody in your life needs negative consequences brought into their lives do you not think that the lord is better at meeting out that punishment than you and let me give you a little secret here if he does it you will not get blamed for it If God gives them the spanking, he brings a negative circumstance into their life because they really need it. Instead of you causing that negative circumstance in their life, you allow the Lord to do it. The positive result is in view to your account instead of the negative result of you actually inflicting harm on somebody. Mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, doesn't matter. And so restoration to us who love the Lord is not an option. There there should be no relationship on this earth that's outside where where we say, "I, I don't even want that relationship restored. It's just not of the Lord. Now, they may not all be able to be restored because it takes both people working towards a common goal, but as much as it lies with me, I want to live peaceably. I want restoration to occur. If there's any possible way, if there's anything I can do to make it happen, then that's what I should be seeking. And so these keys, make sure that you're seeking restoration. It's not optional. Be forgiving. Exhibit grace. Show mercy. These things which are important to us. Remember you're not guiltless. You're not faultless. There's problems in each of our lives that only the Lord can handle. These things all point us to the fullness of forgiveness in our lives. That road to reconciliation, restoration, is the road that you want to be on all the time. You want to be someone who seeks out the goodness of the Lord in everything that's busted. It's his love that heals the past. It's his love that works out those things in our lives. And I often think, what if you know, the family of Jacob had done some of these things that are now occurring 20 years earlier? Can you imagine the pain they could have avoided? Can you imagine what their lives would have looked like? Can you imagine how much anguish they could have escaped? How much the enemy would not have been able to beat them up with all this stuff. You know, they had to be thinking of these things over all these years. They, in essence, handed the enemy the tools to beat them with. 
because they would not do what God asked them to do. And so seek restoration. Allow God to do that work. Let these things infiltrate your thinking and allow the Lord to fix what is broken in your life. Amen? Would you stand and we'll pray. I'm going to bring some of the pastors and elders and a couple of ladies up to pray. Maybe you've got something in your life that's just busted. It's a relationship and you don't know what to do with it. You know, sometimes just letting somebody else pray for you is the first step. It's a beautiful thing. When we agree with anything on, that's according to his will on this earth, uh, we know that we have God listening in and answering our prayers. Amen? Father, thank you for this time tonight. And I, I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here tonight and their life is just filled with some of these things that are tough for them, Lord, they've got broken relationships. Maybe it's in a marriage or between parents and children or maybe grandparents. Father, maybe it's in the workplace or a friendship. Maybe it's some ministry thing, Lord. There's just something going on and the enemy's been able to get a hold of it. Lord, I pray that we'd be so quick to seek your restoration. Lord, where there's brokenness, would you please fix it? We're giving you permission to reach into our lives and fix broken things. Lord, we want the organs of our chapels making beautiful music for you. And Lord, some of us have busted pipes. Lord, the the foot pedal isn't going up and down. There's no air. Lord, being expelled over those beautiful pipes. There's no music coming out of our lives because God, we've allowed brokenness and Lord, decay, fix us, Lord. We're asking you to fix it. And so we thank you, we praise you, we bless you. And God's people all said, amen.